This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, writer and lawyer Scott Turo, known most for his fiction, which includes Pleading Guilty and most recently, The Last Trial. He has also written a number of non-fiction works, including Ultimate Punishment, a memoir that deals with the perils of capital punishment. To his writing, he brings a rare expertise from the courtroom as a former supervisor in the United States Attorney's Office in Chicago. I'm pleased he's joining me. Scott Turo, welcome. Daniel, thank you. Nice to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Looking at everything you do, everything with the law, everything with literature, I know you wanted to be in literature, in fiction writing from a young age. How does it all come together? Obviously, the law plays a big part in what you write. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. but it's kind of rare to have a, a... a high-level professional life in, in two different fields coexisting. What, how'd this all happen? As you would expect, uh, if you were realistic, very accidentally, I wanted to be a novelist, as you said, from a young age. I was a writing fellow out at Stanford, which is terrain known to your family. I was teaching there a little bit. I had an opportunity to, be, to move on with jobs in uh, a couple of English departments. I sensed that that was not the right life for me and sort of almost by process of elimination ended up going to law school. I was unexpectedly intrigued is is, is too mild a word for the depth of the interest I, I had. I felt a real passion for the questions that are central to the law. So I said, okay, uh, I'll do this feeling I was junking my literary career. And of course, it turned out in contrast to be the great break of my literary career. I ended up with a contract to write what turned out to be my first published book, 1L, about my experiences as a law student. The marriage at that point of a legal career and a literary one had really begun. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's never stopped. I'm now days away, a little more than two weeks from uh, finally retiring as a practicing lawyer, leaving aside some pro bono work that I'll be continuing to do. But that combination is, has lasted, you know, since 1978. So it's worked out very well for me. I wonder, because in your fiction writing, obviously there's a theme that you can only develop from your, quote, real-world experience, to use that very overused phrase, uh, in in law, in the courtroom. But Obviously, your nonfiction writing is that connected to what you're doing. I wonder, is there a separation you have to make? Do you have to think to yourself when you're writing fiction, okay, this is fiction, uh, let me be very clear to separate? Or do you find that, that naturally so much of what you do in real life is, is bleeding over and, and fiction becomes close to nonfiction? Fiction, to, uh, uh, to invoke a lofty quotation, which was that of William Faulkner as he accepted the Nobel Prize. Uh, Faulkner said that uh, fiction is really about the human heart in conflict with itself, whereas, you know, the law, of course, is about the imprecise but unacknowledged imprecision of applying, you know, rules to behavior. When you're writing fiction, 
you're writing about characters uh, and about human beings who, if they're in legal situations and in the work I've done, they always are, whether it's the fiction or the nonfiction. And they're experiencing the sort of dissonance of having the law be relatively certain about what the rules are and therefore what the outcome should be, whereas um, our values, as often happens in given situations, uh, point us in a number of different directions. And so the fiction is thematically always about the shortcomings of the law. The fiction always assumes that the law is an important institution. And I am sure there are many people in this society who regard it as a construct, as fundamentally worthless as, say, in a cynical point of view, as, as, as worthless as advertising. If you can't take that leap with me of saying this is, um, you know, the law is a major part of civilization, then the novels are, and, and even the nonfiction is going to be pretty uninteresting. But mo- most people accept the reality of the laws as bounding and defining our lives and society. That That's a kind of long-winded answer to your question. I hope I've come close to answering it. <laughs> well, <laughs> many, many, many answers are valid uh, for me, uh, and that's certainly one of them. I, I, I wonder, just staying on, on, on the legalistic front for a minute, what is this expression that we hear batted around a lot today in uh, political discourse and in, in society, what is law and order? What does that mean? Well, uh, you know, law and order has um, always been a code word since I think it was Richard Nixon who really sort of brought it into common political parlance. It means sort of rigid enforcement of the criminal law to prevent civil unrest very often racial tinge to it, since Nixon talked about law and order after the widespread uh, riots in uh, poor black neighborhoods across the United States that occurred in 1965. Uh, But, you know, actually, when Nixon invoked it, he was also talking about the demonstrations against the war in Vietnam, the long, the long haired hippies, uh, you know, the, the free love contingent, the drug taking, it almost always is a code for um, a cultural confrontation in the United States. Law and order has um, always been a code word since I think it was Richard Nixon who really sort of brought it into common political parlance. It means sort of rigid enforcement of the criminal law to prevent civil unrest. You were an assistant U.S. attorney in Chicago. I wonder, in terms of hard-nosed prosecution, what, what, first of all, what drew you to being an attorney for the government uh, of the United States, and, and how much leeway do you feel that you had as an attorney in the office in Chicago, prosecuting, decoding, determining uh, what, what you were going to take on? Being an assistant U.S. attorney is regarded throughout the legal community is, you know, one of the the great stepping stones in the life of somebody who wants to be a trial lawyer. There are other ways to sort of learn your chops in a courtroom, but being an AUSA 
is probably the most um, cherished of of those positions. You practice in the federal courts where the judges are at least as good as their state court peers as a group, very often even better. There's time to give to cases rather than the sort of assembly line justice that gets practiced in most uh, big city criminal courtrooms. And there's phenomenal discretion because uh, if you're talking about urban justice, the police drive it. Virtually anybody they choose to arrest and prosecute uh, has to go through the system, whereas the federal system vests uh, the discretion not in the law enforcement officers, but the prosecutors. So for a young person coming out of law school, they don't tend to get that job very often anymore and with good reason because you have tremendous uh, power, which probably as a general matter doesn't belong in the hands of somebody who, as I was, was straight out of law school. It was a thrilling job for that reason. I really was my own client. I decided what was right or wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, there weren't people looking over my shoulder. There were. But it was also an environment where, I, you know, I had one case that uh, really fell apart before trial. My main witness, I hadn't realized, had spent a significant amount of time in a mental institution. Um, I realized that the agent who had brought the case had cut a few corners. And I, I went to the U.S. attorney and I said, you know, Tony, I don't I don't think this guy is guilty. And he just looked at me and he said, well, that's the end of the case then. To him, it was not worth any further discussion. Go to court on Monday and dismiss the case. We're done with this. That's liberty and power and value. It was a phenomenal job. Most people who've been AUSAs, no matter where it is in the country, uh, think of the position that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was it was a great time in my life. Uh, it also, frankly, is something that um, just just gives the lie to the people who think that, you know, government service is uh, sort of uh, an, an, another name for loafers. Uh, you know, I, I, I worked uh, unbelievably hard as a as an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, most of the Justice Department lawyers that I have known in my life work equally hard. Uh, you know, a 60-hour week was a light week. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it takes incredible dedication, but the, the, the cause is worth it. What do you feel when you hear attacks from certain corners of the political discourse on career people who similar to you, spent 60-hour weeks uh, working in various attorneys' offices, and the sort of idea of, of a deep state of career attorneys in courthouses and, and attorneys' offices. What, what does that send in terms of its messaging uh, to those people who, who sort of toil away like you're describing? Well, obviously it's not uh, a positive development to diminish public respect for for the contribution that that people are making i i uh i it's it, my situation and that of most assistant u.s attorneys uh with you know sort of solid gold resumes coming to that job um you, you didn't 
I, I knew nobody had to hold a tag day for me. But I, on the other hand, uh, I was making, you know, half the money that my friends from law school were making. I didn't mind. I made that choice. I never felt any resentment about it. But I, I might have been um, more ambivalent if I was um, seen not as a somebody doing a public service, but rather as a public enemy. I, I chafe particularly, by the way, Daniel, at the um, at the descriptions of the FBI that have been common from this administration. The FBI, as I experienced it, both as a prosecutor and as a defense lawyer, is the most competent and professional law enforcement agency that I have dealt with. And if all of our law enforcement officers throughout the United States carried out their jobs the way the FBI agents that I've dealt with did, there would be no George Floyd. We would not need a Black Lives Matter movement, at least as far as police behavior is concerned, because people would respect the limits of the law and treat everybody suspected of breaking the law with the dignity. So I, I take great umbrage at the attacks on the line, prosecutors in the Justice Department and certainly the FBI agents as well. I was proud to work with them, and I still am. You talked about the idea of storytelling and how it plays a big part in both the writing of fiction uh, and obviously in arguing in front of a jury. What is this dramatic arc all about, and, and what parallels do you draw between uh, sort of performing in front of your audience, the jury, and, and performing in a different way on the page for an audience of readers? I don't think the comparisons really dawned on me until I was had started my career in Chicago as a prosecutor. And at that point, I realized, you know, this is a lot more like what I was doing when I was a writing fellow at Stanford, writing stories than I ever thought. Uh, and in point of fact, I learned a great deal about how to address a popular audience from my time as a prosecutor. You know, the stuff that I would dismiss as schmaltzy uh, and, uh, you know, unoriginal. Um, it may be schmaltzy and unoriginal, but it had tremendous effect on a jury. Uh, and, you know, there's a saying among trial lawyers that for jurors, it's always opening night. They haven't seen a lot of these stunts before. But, but most of it is literally, whether you're writing a novel or prosecuting a case, it is storytelling. You know, defense lawyers can try cases simply saying the government's got it wrong. And, you know, assail witness after witness. At the end, they stand up and say the government got it wrong. There's a reasonable doubt. As a prosecutor, though, you're really obliged to tell the jury a story of how something that the community judged, judges to be evil, how evil occurred. And you know, motive, they, there's a saying that, you know, motive, it's not just a saying, it's an axiom in the law that, you know, you don't have to prove motive. But a prosecutor who doesn't give great thought to motive uh, is m most likely going to lose her or his case. So it's got to be a coherent story of how this happened. You know, this guy was, um, his marriage was falling apart. He'd become a drug user. Uh, he needed money. Uh, and even though earlier in his life uh, he was an Eagle Scout, 
he couldn't live by those lights any longer, and so he broke the law. And you've got to you got to be able at the end of a case to tell the story, and just like just like the novel, um, where that comes to light through the you know the voices and accounts and interactions with with different characters. That's that's just what the witnesses are in a prosecution. And uh, I I really was struck by the parallels when I was probably in my first or second year as a prosecutor. I'm just I'm just doing the same thing, you know, having a sense of of what a good story is, uh, is important in both callings. Talk about character and talk about plot, i.e., how much do jurors care about the people, the individuals that you describe to them, uh, and how much do they care about the actions? And and I think you can probably answer that from from the novelistic point of view as well. Uh, character and plot, and, and do you think sometimes... A jury is persuaded to go in one direction or another by only the person involved and the picture you paint of that person or only uh, uh, the timeline and the events and the sort of general overview of the alleged crime. There are times when I've talked to juries after a case is over and have been absolutely horrified by their reasoning process. But when it comes to sort of a basic understanding of the way human beings interact, they're remarkably wise. I remember a friend of mine uh, trying a case as prosecutor. The major witness for the defense had been the defendant's mother, uh, who got on the witness stand and uh, gave the defendant an alibi. My friend didn't bother to cross-examine her. He said, no questions. He stood up in closing argument. He says, you know, what does the defense offer you? He says, the testimony of his mother. And then my friend just looked at the jury and shrugged as if to say, we all know and hope that our mothers would, would lie under oath for us if it was going to save us from something, something terrible. And the jury got it. They, <laughs> I thought he was crazy when he didn't cross-examine this woman. But he was more experienced than I was, and he knew. He knew what they were going to think. That kind of subtlety about motivations is, is often amazing in juries. You know, do they get things wrong? Yeah, all the time. They will believe cops even when it, it is perhaps obvious to more sophisticated people if the cop is lying through his teeth. and they. But, you know, there's a level at which they may understand that the cop is lying, but they may say, well, he wouldn't bother lying if the defendant didn't do something wrong. Uh, he must know the defendant's guilty, so I'm going to find the defendant guilty anyway. Uh, and there's a lot to that. Most cops that I've known will lie when forced to, but they draw the line at lying to get an innocent person. And so that's that's the kind of nuanced understanding that I, you know, I've seen juries exhibit. When you start getting into the kinds of technical matters that are on part of the evidence in in the imagined case in the last trial, you know, about clinical trials and things like that, um, they're easily bamboozled. You you can't give somebody a PhD education in three weeks. When it comes to understanding behavior that they're usually pretty acute. 
I want to take it back to literature for a minute. You talked about in an essay as a young person going to the library to read Ulysses, uh, the mm-hmm. iconic novel of James Joyce, and, and, and you wrote... I'm quoting here, I was also troubled that the library's single volume of Ulysses was there every day I went for it, never checked out. It seemed that no one else in this well-to-do, highly educated community wanted to read the greatest novel ever written, at least not in the leisure hours of summer. I thought inevitably of the philosophical riddle with which school children were routinely teased in those days. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, is there sound? (laughs) All true. All true. The story is even more amusing. Is I was working as a letter carrier, so as, as a substitute post person uh, in this, this you know, affluent suburban town outside Chicago. And eventually, like everybody else working for the post office, I got good enough at the job that I had a lot of spare time before I clocked out because we were forbidden from letting the postmaster know that the job actually was a six-hour job rather than the eight-hour job we were being paid for. So I'd go to the library because it was the only air-conditioned building in the town, and I thought, well, as long as I'm going to get paid for the next two hours, I had to do something worthwhile. And so I decided to read Ulysses. At the end of the summer, I had read Ulysses. I think I understood some of why people revered the book, but I had two reactions to it, one being that I, I was not unhappy that I had been paid $2.52 an hour to read it. And the other, how can this really be the greatest novel in the world if nobody else wants to read it? A a lot of my um, faith and plot evolved that, you know, you have to be telling a story that is of interest to all readers. You know, I I don't put a great deal of faith in the values of the avant-garde. Not not that I would, you know, abolish avant-garde literature or forbid people from writing it. I don't think that people who choose to go down that path have the right to look down on, on the readers who can't understand it or don't enjoy it. Talk about enjoyment for a minute. Talk about the books that you really loved as a young person and, and the books that have been with you as you've gone through life, uh, the books that you fall back on, that you you sit down on the couch and you really want to read repeatedly? You know, I'm I'm not sure that I understood as much as a younger person who was reading um, as I would once the years went on. You know, the books that both were, you know, profoundly meaningful to me when I read them first uh, and now when I pick them up years later are, you know, the, the, the novels of Tolstoy, I'm a devoted fan of of Graham Greene. You know, Dickens, uh, who, uh, because of the sort of uh, what I was talking about before with, you know, the the schmaltzy tricks that that work with a jury, but, uh, you know, you've seen them before. I, I was disinclined to give Dickens his due when I was younger. My admiration for Dickens is just grown every year that I've been alive. He was a great, great writer and also somebody who was loyal to his upbringing uh, and his social class uh, and didn't forget the lessons that he should have carried with him uh, from having been poor. But, you know, what resounds ultimately is the story. There are writers 
who I adore, like Saul Bellow, and I can pick up um, a novel by Bellow, especially the later work, and read any page with amazement. You know, I'm hard-pressed to say, oh, that, you know, that Herzog, that's a great story. Because it is, as I've I've written in an essay I wrote about my very strange personal relationship with Bellow, that, you know, the, the, the plot of any Bellow novel can be summarized in a sentence, which is a guy wanders around and thinks. And despite enormous appreciation for the way Bellow wrote, you know, that's not a great story. I despair, therefore, that he'll be able to stand the test of time. Why would that be a problem in terms of his reputation in the future? Don't you think that there are enough people who appreciate the beauty of the sentence, the craftsmanship, the expertise with the language, the ability to use metaphor, that it would supersede the potential issues with a, a plot that grabbed you? Yes, but one of the problems... I remember uh, one of my English professors at Amherst, Theodore Baird, and he was, I was taking a Shakespeare class from him, and he was talking about the way, you know, you, you could argue that Shakespeare was overwritten in the sense that he, you know, he was telling you everything about the way the characters thought and the way they felt, albeit in the most, you know, amazing verse that's perhaps ever been written but he said you know you can look at Hemingway and he got out a page of Hemingway and he read it you know this one word exchange uh, for in, in for whom the bell tolls and he said how much of this are people going to understand a century from now when our language has changed and that's the same thing I think about Bellow whose genius was in mixing the the vernacular with incredibly literary and intellectual language, often in the space of the same the same sentence. As that vernacular fades fades away, it's going to be harder for people to appreciate that, especially without you know a story on the you know level of King Lear uh, to carry them along. You know, King Lear or Hamlet or Macbeth offer wisdoms that are uh, eternal because of the stories that they tell and uh, the, the answer to your question is language changes and to the extent that literature depends on a nuanced understanding of the language of the moment i don't know whether it's going to be important to you know future readers Bella was a big music fan. He was an amateur violinist. And I, in fact, always ask people on this program about the music they love. Everybody does. Uh, wh what are you listening to, Scott Turo? What kind of a role has music played in your life? First of all, I have to be honest, Daniel, and say that it's played a secondary role, not, notwithstanding the best efforts of my mother, who played opera and classical music in my house as a routine manner. I am not gifted at all musically. My kids all have uh, much greater ability as musicians than I do. I was listening to my son, he and his wife and daughter, spending the summer with us, and he was playing the piano. And I looked at his wife and I said, this is last night, I looked up, I said, you know, she said, you know, God damn it, Gabe, Gabe never took piano lessons. Um, <laughs> that, 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 
that doesn't seem remarkable to you, but it does seem remarkable to me. He's a, he's a, he's a very good musician, but I don't have that kind of ability. Do I listen to symphonic music? Yes. Have uh, my wife and I, uh, you know, both uh, separately, because this is a second marriage, had our own, you know, subscriptions to the, you know, the Chicago Symphony? Yes. Did I enjoy it? Yes. Less a fan of opera. You know, what ends up moving me is, is what I know is simpler music, which is to say popular music. We were listening to Tom Petty this morning, and uh, that is to say my my son and my wife and my uh, and my daughter-in-law. You know, for various reasons, there's a sad family event, and uh, there was an, an aspect of, sort of depressive aspect of a lot of what Tom Petty wrote that just fit the moment perfectly. I, I'm sure I could find that in Mozart, uh, too, but... Uh, I just don't know Mozart as well and don't hear it as well. So I listen. We listen to a lot of music in my house now. Uh, a surprising amount of jazz. I would say surprising just because, you know, I didn't have any appreciation of it when I was younger. And, uh, you know, there are many evenings when my wife and I will just choose to, you know, put on, you know, Miles Davis or, you know, Charles Mingus and, and, you know, Coltrane and, and really enjoy it. It's there. And of course, I am, as a joke, uh, a member of a rock band of best-selling authors who perform once a year and rehearse for three or four hours, whether we need it or not, and, and then perform before much larger crowds than we deserve to. Uh, and I've enjoyed that. I mean, I, I enjoy being on stage and you know, doing my own rotten job of singing. Um, this is the this is the rock bottom remainders, and there's a new video is, I saw on YouTube. Yes, of a version of "Stand by Me," and and in right. in keeping with what we're supposed to do now in the pandemic, it's "Don't Stand by Me," and it's wildly charming. I have to say, I I appreciate that. There's a tremendous joke i think a tremendous joke in the middle of it that i don't want to give away but uh it involves a cameo by stephen king who is a you know regular band member and uh but it, it's just perfect i recommend um i recommend it to anybody who wants a real belly laugh because you know it, it, it will come so but don't stand by me is uh it's an attempt to raise some money for the independent bookstores that are so important to the intellectual life of this country. Harold Bloom said, quote, one reads many books because one cannot know enough people. Why do you read, Scott Turo? Why do you read? We get from narrative, whether we're talking about cinema or literature. We love narrative because it allows us to experience what it would be to be someone else. That's not just a childish fantasy. It's it's fundamental to our moral imagination. Uh, you can only do unto others as you would have them do unto you by understanding what the life of others is like. And as much as we think we know the people in our lives, you know, our spouses, our children, uh, our close friends, we still don't know them quite the way that we know Anna Karenina. We understand 
her internal life in complete detail. Uh, I wouldn't accept Bloom's formulation exactly that way. I would say that we read literature because no matter how many people we know, we can never know them in the same way that we know a great character in a novel that we love. And I still believe that that aspect of literature, of uh, allowing us to drink deeply of the internal life of other people, still beats the doors off of film, because film is working from the outside, and it, it can be incredibly moving and uh, suggestive of the internal life, but it's not as fully revealed as it is in literature. Scott Duro. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your insights into literature and law both. Well, thank you for having me, Daniel. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The producer of digital content is Brian West. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.